Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. It is a pleasure for me to introduce today's guest, Dr. Lacey McIntosh. Lacey was a previous resident here at UMass and also served as our chief resident before completing her Oncological Imaging Fellowship. Lacey has rejoined the UMass department several years ago as faculty in both the Division of Abdominal Imaging and Nuclear Medicine, where she helps coordinate and direct our Oncological Imaging services. So Lacey, why don't we begin um, by having you explain for the audience the differences between uh, standard uh, anatomical imaging that we may see with CT, ultrasound, and MRI, and uh, functional imaging, which we can also see with some of those modalities, but um, how it may um, manifest with uh, nuclear medicine and, and specifically PET. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so as you mentioned, anatomic imaging is really just a snapshot in time of what's going on inside a patient's body. Um, you know, depending on what you're looking for, you may or may not get your answer. Um, we sometimes try and do a functional element with anatomic imaging. For example, when we're um, doing an ultrasound looking for a hernia, we might ask the patient to valsalva or bear down to see if we can see changes in the abdominal wall or um, protrusion of tissues to suggest a hernia. But for the most part, we're really just getting a snapshot in time of what the anatomy looks like. Um, functional imaging, which we do a lot of in nuclear medicine, um, really looks at physiology. And we often use radioactive tracers to kind of track that and get a picture of what's going on in terms of function. Um, today, I'm going to talk specifically about PET-CT, um, which is a test that we use mostly for cancer imaging, but sometimes also looking at um, brain metabolism as well as inflammation in the heart um, <clears throat> and a couple of other indications. Excellent. So Lacey, you mentioned uh, that with functional imaging, you look at uh, physiology and you use radio tracers uh, to track function and get a picture of um, what's going on. Could you explain a little bit more uh, for the audience uh, what a radio tracer is and how it's used uh, and maybe give some examples um, of, of these radio tracers? For different indications, we use different radio tracers. Now, what is a radio tracer? Um, the one that you guys have probably most commonly heard of is F18 FDG, fluorodeoxyglucose. Um, so this is basically a sugar molecule that we're able to, to tag with a radioactive molecule that makes us be able to visualize it by PET-CT. Um, and so when we're choosing these, we basically want to find something that's a positron emitter. So two of the most commonly used ones are F18 and gallium-68. We, we use those here in clinical practice at UMass. So like I said, FDG is kind of the main workhorse that we use in our cancer imaging, but also for Alzheimer's and looking at cardiac inflammation. Um, some other examples of tracers are sodium fluoride, which is used for bone imaging. Um, gallium-68 dotatate, which is a tracer that we use for neuroendocrine tumors. Um, we also have an F18 flucyclovine tracer, which is used for current prostate cancer. Um, and coming down the pike, also starting to be used elsewhere, is uh, PSMA, which is prostate-specific membrane antigen. And that's been linked to a couple of different radio tracers. Um, maybe we can go into um, the specific process of PET-CT a little bit more. Um, what exactly does the patient go through for this study? 
how are the images acquired, and what are we actually seeing uh, when we look at a PET-CT study? So when we're looking at PET-CT, a lot of you probably have seen the fusion images, um, which is a combination of the PET and the CT. But what you may not know is that it's actually two different acquisitions that we kind of blend together to get a really nice um, overlay of both functional and anatomic imaging. So we get the best of both worlds here. Um, so basically what happens, the patient shows up, they get an injection of the radio tracer, and we wait about 40 to 60 minutes for that to process, and then they sit in the camera and we collect data based on um, positron emission, this is the PET portion, we collect it for about 30 minutes. Um, and then at the end of that, we also do a non-contrast CT. Um, and then the end result is that you get this nice fusion image where you have an overlap of both functional imaging from the PET and then the anatomic imaging from the CT. Um, and so we're able to look at kind of the normal biodistribution where we expect to see FDG and then areas that are unexpected. And then we kind of use our, our background and our understanding of medicine to kind of interpret those findings and figure out what is pathologic and what's a false negative, false positive, uh, and what actually represents cancer, which is what we're usually looking for. So what is the uh, typical or normal distribution of a radio tracer in uh, FDG PET? That's an excellent question, and actually it's one of the most important things to know about functional imaging because you need to know what's normal, as with any other radiology study. You need to know what's normal before you can figure out what's abnormal. So FDG is basically radioactive glucose, so you're going to see it anywhere that you would expect the body to be using sugar. Um, we also, in preparation for the exam, we ask the patients to fast for at least four hours, but ideally kind of overnight. And the reason for that is we want to starve their tissues for glucose so that when we inject our radioactive glucose, we're going to have really good uptake in, in tissues, both normal tissues as well as pathologic, abnormal um, tissue uptake. But you can imagine this is really a, a challenge for patients that have diabetes to be kind of balancing their blood sugars and their insulin and having them be at the optimal blood sugar when they come in for an exam. So basically, if the blood sugar is under 200, we expect to see kind of a normal and good uptake of the tracer. If their blood glucose is over 200, then we usually have to reschedule them, push them out to a little bit later in the day because their tissues are already going to be saturated with, with um, the glucose that's circulating in their body, and so they're not going to have good uptake of the tracer. Um, so a normal pattern that we see is... Um, in tissues that are having a lot of turnover and that are very highly metabolically active, um, you're going to see a lot of uptake. So kind of the major places you see that is the brain. Um, of course, that's using a ton of glucose every day, all day. Um, other areas that we can see it um, include a little bit in the liver, a little bit in the spleen, some background gastrointestinal um, uptake, which is a combination of both uptake in the smooth, mu smooth muscle of the bowel walls as well as excretion into the lumen of the bowel as well. So the GI tract is always a little bit challenging to look at because there's kind of some background there anyways. Um, myocardium can have variable uptake, and that actually really depends on the patient's diet in terms of fatty acid. Uh, we don't have specific dietary instructions for normal FDG oncologic imaging, but if we're going to do a cardiac study, um, a cardiac PET using FDG, then we actually have the patients eat a very low-carb diet leading up to their study because we don't want them to have any uptake in the heart unless it's pathologic. Okay. Now that we know a little bit about 
uh, what's expected in a normal PET CT. Uh, what about um, limitations? With any uh, modality, we have limitations. What type of uh, limitations uh, do we have with a PET CT? Okay, so for limitations, um, as with any radiology study, there's usually something um, that it's very good at looking at, but there are going to be areas that you sacrifice with this. So for PET, um, you know, the major limitations are size. Uh, in terms of spatial resolution, the smallest things that we usually recommend PET for are about 8 millimeters. Um, anything smaller than that, you risk the, the chance of, if you don't see uptake, is it because it's truly negative or is it just because it's below the size limits of resolution? So um, we don't really recommend using PET to work up anything less than 8 millimeters. Having said that, we sometimes do see small findings that do demonstrate uptake and, um, you know, so it's not absolute, but in terms of what you want to use PET for workup, I wouldn't recommend it for anything less than eight millimeters up front. Um, The other thing is for PET CT, at least here at UMass, we don't use contrast with our CT. Um, Some places do, but Basically, what we're using the CT portion is really just for uh, anatomic localization um, to help us interpret where the findings are that we see on the PET. Um, Some places do full diagnostic, oral, and intravenous contrast uh, along with their PET CTs, but, you know, that requires a physician on site with uh, contrast administration for issues like allergies and um, you know, certainly renal considerations as well. So depending on where you are and how your PET CTs are done, um, the CT is of variable quality. Um, the other issue with the CT is because we are collecting the PET data over 30 minutes, we don't want to have the patient take a deep breath for their CT because that's going to result in a mismatch and a, a lot of misregistration. <clears throat> so when we take the CT of, of uh, the patient during the PET, we don't ask them to hold their breath. And so there's some motion artifact there as well, which is gonna limit your small findings like pulmonary nodules. Um, In addition, because it's a huge field of view, you're not gonna have great spatial resolution. And we usually have about five millimeter slices. So again, the CT portion of PET can be quite limited. um, And so that's a limitation. What about the issue of false positive diagnosis when you are interpreting PET? Can you give us uh, some insight into how we may uh, mitigate uh, false positive results? Yeah, so this is really, this is kind of where your expertise as a radiologist comes in. Anybody can look at a PET CT and say, oh, this is hot, this is not. Um, But there are lots of processes that cause uptake on a PET that aren't necessarily cancer. Um, So with FDG, being a sugar molecule, you can imagine that anything that's metabolically active is going to cause uptake. So things like infection, inflammation, um, sometimes benign tumors, incidental findings um, can cause uptake that don't necessarily represent cancer. So kind of understanding what those look like on CT can be really helpful, as well as kind of having background information on the patient. Um, Usually when we do a PET, we have an intake form that asks them if they've had any recent illnesses, um, if they've had recent surgery or biopsy, that can also cause uptake that doesn't necessarily represent cancer. So um, interpreting those post-operative patients can be really, really difficult because when you inject inflammation into your field, you're going to see uptake that's not necessarily due to cancer. And it can be really difficult to kind of distinguish what is post-op versus residual tumor or, um, you know, metastases to nodes that are just kind of clearing inflammation from the surgical bed. 
So the false positive results seem a bit intuitive. Um, and like you said, uh, anything that would be uh, increased in metabolic activity uh, unrelated to cancer, such as infection or inflammation, um, may lead to a, a false diagnosis. I can also imagine those um, post-operative cases being quite a challenge. Now, how about um, the false negatives? Are there particular cancers uh, that are more uh, likely to lead to uh, false negative results? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there are certain cancers that we don't really like to use PET-CT for um, because they're not particularly metabolically active. So prostate's an example of that. Most prostate cancers are kind of indolent and um, we don't really see a lot of metabolic activity with these tumors. So we don't usually recommend FDG PET for prostate cancer. There's other tracers that we can use, but just kind of sticking to the FDG tracer. Um, some other cancers include anything that's like slow growing or indolent, um, which can be adenocarcinomas of the lung. Um, so it's important to kind of know what you're expecting to see before you read these. Like if you're following a lung cancer or something that you suspect to be lung cancer by CT over a couple of years that starts out as ground glass and then starts to um, develop punctate solid components, you can tell just based on the tumor biology that it's slow growing and that it's, you know, may not be poorly differentiated. It might be in the more well differentiated category. Um, so if you don't see uptake on PET associated with this, but the CT pattern is very concerning for cancer, a negative PET shouldn't reassure you that something isn't necessarily a cancer. Okay, uh, Lacey, how about we uh, switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about the future of uh, PET, maybe uh, what we can expect um, as far as uh, future indications and tracers. This is an area that I find very, very exciting and hopeful for the future of medicine, um, just kind of molecular imaging in general. Um, so the way that the research is headed is that we're finding very specific molecules that we can tag with imaging radio tracers to be able to very specifically identify where a tumor is. One example of this is with our gallium-68 dotatate scan. So the dotatate molecule is something that will attach to a somatostatin receptor on the surface of a cell. So in certain cancers, these somatostatin receptors are upregulated, um, most commonly seen with neuroendocrine tumors, carcinoid, um, things like that. And so we are able to very specifically identify exactly where tumor cells are. And it's kind of binary. It's yes, there is um, somatostatin receptor expression here or no, there isn't, um, which is a lot different than our, our general FDG, which is just a sugar molecule that kind of goes wherever there's metabolism occurring. Um, and so with Dotatate, we have found very specific imaging, which is very exciting, but also recently the FDA has approved um, therapeutic agent with Dotatate. So uh, Lutetium-177 is a therapeutic radio tracer that is able to directly deliver radiation to any, to any cell that is expressing somatostatin receptor that the Dotatate binds to. So with a molecule like Dotatate, it's very exciting because you can attach, you know, a fairly benign radio radionuclide such as 68 gallium, which um, will give you the diagnostic information about where tumor is. But then you can also alternatively, once you know you have good binding with Dotatate, you can attach a therapeutic molecule such as Lutetium-177 that will actually treat the tumor. Um, and this is different from other kinds of chemotherapy or radiation because you're specifically delivering the treatment to the cells that um, 
express the receptor, which are cancerous. So it's, it's very exciting. This new treatment has shown um, incredibly improved outcomes uh, with increasing lifespan by up to two years for these patients with metastatic neuroendocrine tumors. So my hope is that with the development of all of these new diagnostic tracers, that it goes hand in hand with therapeutic theranostics that, um, that offer you know, a very specific and targeted therapy for these different kinds of cancers. Wow, that's uh, really exciting uh, information. Um, I think that's a great place to end this episode. So thank you, Lacey, uh, for coming in and joining us on From the Viewbox. I really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, we appreciate you taking some time to speak to our listeners uh, and hope you enjoyed as well. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time. <laughs>